thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Dr Chris Smith, and also this week with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, we're going to be finding out how scientists have persuaded chickens to lay eggs that are pre-packed with drugs. We'll also be finding out how scientists are plotting to save the world's weirdest creatures from extinction, and some certain humans are not included in that list, and also the solar-powered bikini. Now, you can do your bit for the environment while sunning yourself on the beach. Find out how in five minutes. And speaking of doing your bit for the planet, this This week we've seen the country brought to its standstill by storms and we'll be asking, is this global warming? Is it significant that in the last year the UK has had the highest average temperature since records began? That in New York there's been no snow this year and residents have been basking in temperatures of 20 degrees centigrade? Or that in parts of Canada where there should be snow on the ground, people are still cutting their lawns? Is this climate change or is it just part of the Earth's natural variation? Well, to find out, we'll be talking to the British Antarctic Survey Dr. Eric Wolfe and John Gibbons from the Imperial College London. Plus, we'll be asking what you can do, what we can do about the problem and look at, by looking at alternative energy. And in our kitchen science experiment, we'll find out whether all those people sweating away in gyms across the country could help us power the national grid. Indeed, how far would you need to cycle to power a television? That's all to come. And if you're in the mood to win something, then Up for Grabs is a copy of my new book, Naked Science, which is full of fun and funky science discoveries along the lines of what we talk about here on The Naked Scientist. For a chance to win, all you have to do is to tell us how old is the Earth. And if you get the answer closest to the answer which we think is the correct answer, then you're the one who's going to win. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, here's a, a story to get us off uh, to a hot start, or a bit hot under the collar, if at the very least. We've heard about solar-powered clothing, Helen, but what do you reckon about a solar-powered bikini? Would you wear one? What, first, my question is, what does it do? Why do you need a solar-powered bikini? Well, well this is the brainchild of a researcher at... Um, at uh, New York University, his name's Andrew Sh- Schneider. I won't kind of es- let's kind of try and guess which part of his brain he was using when he came up with this idea, but uh, it was featured at the interactive telecommunication program students show in late 2006. What it consists of is a bikini which has been retrofitted with solar cells. So in other words, you've got a photovoltaic material on the surface of the bikini material, which literally c- gathers the energy from the sun and turns it into electricity. He says that uh, the female version, not that there's going to be a male version, but uh, you'll understand why. I said in the minute. The female version uh, actually generates about six and a half volts, but it goes through a voltage regulator, so it puts out five volts. It goes to a USB connector, which you can connect your iPod to, and it's capable of charging up your personal sort of iPod or, or MP3 player. But good news is that there's also a male version, the iDrink, as it's called, and apparently it has a bigger surface area than uh, of solar cells than the female version, the bikini, and this puts out enough current, one and a half amps of current, to power uh, not just a charger for your personal MP3 player, but also a cooling device for your can of beer, so you can look cool, stay cool, and listen to cool music at the beach, uh, whilst looking rather tragic at the same time. That sounds fantastic. I have one slight question, though. Can we still 
still go swimming. Well, this is a big thing. Very bad idea. I was looking into this actually, and I can't find any evidence that it won't short out when you go in the sea with it. So it could be a really rather painful sort of combination of uh, a rather sensitive bit of anatomy with a whole lot of electricity. But you you think, um, you know, they say that the the male version has a bigger surface area, so makes more power. But can you imagine if you got these on Baywatch? You know, so they'd Pam- have Pamela quite Anderson a could power ones, wouldn't they? Well, well Pamela Anderson were? could power a city. Yeah. She? Oh, I see. Ah, yes. Okay. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> Moving on to slightly more clean issues. Chris, have you ever heard of a bumblebee bat? Have you ever heard of a Bactrian camel? Or maybe a long-eared gerboa? Are these things you've ever heard of before? I've heard of the long-ge- long-eared gerboa. Is you it ger or ger? Oh, gerboa. Gerboa. Oh, right. But mm. what is it? Um, well, it. it's one of these creatures that are very unique. And in fact, it's one of the top 10 weird creatures listed by the Zoological Society of London, or ZSL, um, who've uh, chosen to try and protect under their new project called Edge of Existence Programme, those species which are evolutionarily distinct and globally threatened, uh, globally endangered, hence Edge. And the project focuses on animals that not only are in immediate need of conservation action to prevent them from going extinct, but they're also very strange and distinct with not many close relatives, species that truly are one of a kind. Now, in order to work out how evolutionarily distinct the world's mammal species are, scientists at ZSL, as well as the University of Virginia in the US and Imperial College London, have created a super tree of all the mammal species. Now, it's a bit like a human family tree, really, which maps out just how all the mammals are related to each other. And for species to have a higher score in this evolutionary distinctiveness, they need to have fewer close relatives. And essentially, they represent the whole branch of a tree rather than just the twigs at the end that are more rapidly evolving, if you like. And the idea is that these unusual and often little-known species are especially important since once they've disappeared, there'll be nothing similar like them left on the planet. Now, what the scientists have done is they've combined these evolutionary distinctive scores, or ED scores, with another score for how endangered the species is, which is based on the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, which is the most comprehensive assessment we have for finding out how likely a species is to go extinct. So they combine these two scores and come up with 564 edge species, which are these ones that are very um, likely to go extinct, but are also very highly unique. And of these, we've got a top 10, including our long-eared gerbil, and I'm actually a I don't know what that is. Um, but I do have another one I'd like to talk about, which is Attenborough's long-beaked echidna, which was indeed named after Sir David. Thank you very much for that. It's the closest uh, relative to a platypus, isn't it? It's, an, yes, a type of mammal called a, a monotreme. Which lays eggs. Eggs, yeah. that's right, Chris. So they've I've seen one, straight. actually. I've seen an echidna. Have you? Yeah, I was in Tasmania. Oh, they fantastic. live in Australia and Tasmania. And what do they look like, Chris? Tell they're us. like a, a sort of big porcupine sort of mm. thing. They're, they're a spiky animal. They're not quite as spiky as a hedgehog, uh, but they're spiky. And they they have... A hedgehoggy-like face, but they're much bigger than a hedgehog. Yes, they're much bigger. And this one's got a very long nose. It's the long-nosed anteater. It's also spiny anteater is another name for them. And this particular one actually only lives in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea. Um, and it's only known from one dead specimen that was found in 1961. This is the Attenborough's long-nosed spiny anteater. So now the team of scientists want to go and search for these elusive creatures and also work out what's the best way to try and help protect the habitat that they live in that's currently being destroyed by mining and farming. Because this is the key question, isn't it? It's all very well <laughs> identifying all these animals that are at risk but it's very hard to save them or at least save all of them um, and what people have begun to say is, well, actually, if you look where most of them crop up, they crop up in areas where the, the, we, we probably, if we put lots of effort into just one small area, we could save a certain percentage of them. Therefore, we're going to have to let some fall by the wayside in the name of saving 
the majority. Yes, and that hot, it's called a hotspot idea, that which is definitely one way of looking at the world. But um, I think one thing this particular project is quite good at is that it's actually working very closely with young scientists in the country where these mammals live, where these strange animals live. And they're trying to equip these young people, sort of um, park managers and young scientists, with the necessary skills so they can keep on monitoring and protecting these animals in their own countries. Are they going to be savable? Well, I think I have to believe that we can do something about it. And we're not going to save everything, but we have to have a jolly good try at it. And this is just one way of trying to choose which one, which species perhaps to pick out from the others. But um, I think we have to try and believe that something can be done. Otherwise, we may as well just go home and give up. Well, to birds and our feathered friends now, and that's a piece of research that's been done in the Roslin Institute. You probably remember, Helen, what the Roslin's famous for. Of course, Dolly the sheep came from the Roslin. Oh, that's right. They, cloned, they, were the first, uh, they were the originators of the first cloned mammal, Dolly the sheep. Well, now they've actually produced chickens that lay golden eggs, or at least the pharmaceutical equivalent of a golden egg, because Helen Sang's group have managed to achieve the genetic modification of a chicken so that when it lays eggs, it makes drug molecules that are inserted into the eggs, so they're like pre-packaged drugs and they're in the egg white. How have they done it? Well, what they did was to make a genetically rebuilt virus that can insert its genetic material into an animal's body. They injected this genetically manipulated virus that had been engineered to contain the gene for a certain uh, sort of substance they wanted to make, the drug they wanted to make, into an egg that had been fertilised that had a chick developing inside. And when that chick was born, it was then able to make these drug molecules in its body. But because the team had very cunningly added a regulator or a genetic switch that means that the gene is only turned on in the oviduct, in other words, the part of the chicken that makes the egg, the drug wasn't everywhere in the chicken's body, only in the egg. And when it came out, they were able to collect these eggs and demonstrate that the chickens were making large amounts of these particular proteins, things like interferons, which are useful regulators of the immune system, and also antibodies that can be used for various things were being made as well. And they could show that these chickens could breed and their children, the chicken, their, chick, their chicks, inherited the ability too. So it could pass down the generations. So this suggests because chickens grow very fast and they can be bred very fast, you could produce whole teams of chickens that are capable of making very clean, very high-purity high drugs in their eggs. That sounds fantastic. As long as we don't keep them in barns, I hope. And keep them free-range um, pharmaceutical chickens would be what I'd I'm not for. sure if that would actually be allowed under the terms of making sure the drugs weren't getting contaminated uh, so right. keeping people mm. happy. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, to kick us off on our energy-related show, the Science Uptake crew look at the most environmentally friendly way to get around, foot power. But we all know that walking long distances can be a bit tiring after a while, so Bob and Chelsea find out how we might be able to ease the load. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to tell you how you can save your energy and save your back. The first trick Chelsea's here to tell us is to use bungee cords. Whether you're a hiker, a paramedic, a grade schooler, or, of course, a field researcher, a heavy backpack can be a real pain. Now, University of Pennsylvania muscle physiologist Larry Rome has designed an ergonomic pack that can lighten the load and potentially prevent injuries. It's rigged with a springy, stretchy bungee cord, which allows the load to glide up and down on a frame as you walk. That eliminates the exertion of lifting the pack a few inches every time you take a step. Essentially, the bungee cord just stretches so that the load stays at constant height from the ground. If the load doesn't move with respect to the ground, then it doesn't have to be accelerated and there's no accelerative force. 
That may sound trivial, but Rome says these peak forces can double or even triple a pack's load while you're walking or running. In contrast, the bungee pack's effective load stays very close to its actual weight. Thanks, Chelsea. If you sit for a living, the common wisdom that you should sit up straight could be wrong. This, according to Asim Bashir, a musculoskeletal radiologist at the University of Alberta in Canada. He and his colleagues used a new full-body MRI scanner to study various sitting positions. Sitting up bolt straight, 90 degrees, with your back straight and your legs parallel to the floor, increases the amount of pressure in your lower back, discs, and strain on your muscles and ligaments, and also causes squashing of the discs when you're in that position. They found that it's much better to recline slightly with your knees well below your hips, creating a wide angle between your thighs and torso. That's hard to do in most office chairs, but Bashir says putting a wedge-shaped cushion under your back and raising the seat height can help. Unfortunately, they found that slouching, which is what most of us do, is still not smart. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll talk about a new surprising hypothesis about life on Mars. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And that's if you can't wait till next week to hear more science update, then you can go to their website as always at www.scienceupdate.com. Got an email here from Fred, who is a farmer. He says, "Excellent show. Listen to it whilst I'm farming. The humour and insight make the days on the tractor fly by. The topics you cover are always very interesting and informative. And uh, I've shared several shows with friends and family. That's because Fred's downloading our show uh, via the podcast, which you can get from thenakedscientist.com. That's our website. He says, "Can't wait till spring so I can load up the pod with the archives and hit the fields. Well, Fred, you could be out in your tractor sooner rather than later if the climate keeps going the way it is. And we're exploring later on this this week the science of climate change." with Eric Wolfe from the British Antarctic Survey. He's going to talk about what, what the evidence is that there is a climate change signal. And also John Gibbons here from Imperial College. He's going to try and help us to understand what we can do with some of that carbon dioxide we're producing as a consequence of pumping out all of these or producing all the energy we need to fuel our energy-hungry world. I've got another podcast listener here, Rob McDonald from Huddersfield. Thank you very much for your email. He says um, he loves the show and it makes him want to move to Cambridge so he can listen to it live. So thanks for thanks for letting us know that, Rob. That's fantastic. And he has a question for us. He says um, it's regarding fats. Now, you hear people referring to such things as good and bad fats, i.e. peanuts are a source of good fats, in inverted commas. Um, what's the difference between good ba- fats and bad fats? And are good fats actually good for you or are they just not as bad for us as the bad fats are. Chris, what do you think about that? It's a good question and it has reasonable um, grounds for thinking there are things that should be referred to as good fats and bad fats. If you look at the way people eat and the length of time they live in the Mediterranean, this gives rise to a thing called the Mediterranean paradox or the French paradox. People there seem to live a lot longer than they ought to because they eat very fatty food. But the fats they eat are of a certain type. They're very rich in things like olive oil. And if you look at the olive oil they're eating, what's in olive oil? Well, it's very rich in a type of fat called a monounsaturated fat. Now, when we talk about fats, we're talking about long chains of carbon atoms all linked together. And you can either have one bond, in other words, one line between one carbon and the next, or sometimes you can have a double bond. And if you have lots of single bonds between them, then that's saturated fat and it's bad for you. And the reason it's bad for you is like lard. All of the carbon chains can get very close together and stack up very, very neatly. And this forms a very solid block of block of fat. And it's not very chemically exciting and it just clogs your arteries up. If you have things like olive oil, with these, it has this one single double bond in it. So uh, it means that the chain gets kinked. So the carbon chain gets bent or kinked wherever that's, that double bond is. And it means that the oils 
when they when you try and press them together, they don't stack up very neatly, so they don't form this block of solid lard. They're actually much more chemically exciting, and this is why we think that they might be good for you, because when you feed people these oils, they actually reduce the cholesterol level in the bloodstream, or they push up the level of what we call good cholesterol, because when you eat fat, it raises cholesterol in the bloodstream. And that's because when we absorb fat from the intestine, we secrete substances from the liver, which are very rich in cholesterol, to help the fat be absorbed. And those substances which, uh, come, which, which are in that stuff you secrete from the liver, a lot of cholesterol, come back into the body and then go into the bloodstream. So if you eat a lot of fat, your cholesterol level goes up. But if you eat olive oil and things like it with unsaturates in it, then it seems to not increase your cholesterol level in a bad way. It increases what's called HDL, or good cholesterol. So there is a grounds for breaking fats down into good and bad. And the bad ones are the saturates. They clog arteries. The good ones are things like olive oil, the oils, the unsaturates and things like vegetable oils, because they're believed to be a bit better for you. But I guess we still have to think about maybe our diet and our weight and not having that much fat in our diets, and then we shouldn't spend our whole time drinking gallons of olive oil, but that's sort of another issue as well, I suppose, isn't it? Now, I should, have said, that I should have said just before that my, this email I've got from Rob uh, McDonald said, P.S. Kitchen Science rocks. Now, have we got something... Some feedback on kitchen science, haven't we, Chris? Well, last week uh, someone wrote in to say that they were less happy with Dave's kitchen science and um, they thought that it wasn't as, as enthralling as it could be. But then lots of people said they did like it very much. So I said to people, what do you think about kitchen science? Tell us about it. And so it's now spawned this deluge of mails. Uh, Steve, who's in Vancouver in Canada, says, uh, I was just listening to the podcast and wanted to come out in defence of kitchen science. It's one of my favourite parts. I think it would be great if you folks videoed it too. Uh, so that's Steve, so Dave will be pleased with that. There's another one here from Colleen, who's listening um, in the States, and she said, just got a chance to listen to last week's podcast, and I heard someone dissing Dr. Dave's Kitchen Science. I can't believe that. The Kitchen Science part of the show is great. In fact, it's probably better and bigger than the whole show put together. I'm not sure I agree with that. But um, She said, I was at a party the other day, and someone said, hey, you've got to try this. And they went to their oven, got out the oven rack, and they had the whole party putting strings in their ears and listening to the cool sounds, <laughs> exactly like your demonstration on Kitchen Science a few weeks before. So we're... we're revolutionising parties in the States. This one from Bob Stanton, who's actually in the UK. Uh, he's got a question as part of it, uh, his email as well, but he says, great show, best bits kitchen science. But then an interesting question. Uh, he says, I remember you saying that jet streams flow laterally due to centripetal forces. If CFC gases caused the hole in the ozone layer over the poles, how did those CFCs get there? Why concentrate over the poles? Oh, gosh, Chris, I think you're going to have stumped me there. I wonder if any of our, um, either of our guests in the studio know anything well, about it. I mean, I sort of can have a go at this, but Eric, um, do, you, do you want to have a go at this one? Well, the, the CFCs are actually everywhere in the atmosphere, not just over the poles. It's just that over the poles where they're coldest, you get ice particles that, that the reactions that cause ozone depletion can occur on. So it's, it's not that the CFC concentrations are different, it's just what happens to them. I also heard, Eric, and maybe you can dispute this, but one claim was that because Antarctica is completely isolated and surrounded by ocean, you get the equivalent of a whirlpool effect in the atmosphere over Antarctica, which has a sort of concentrating effect, and this may act like a sort of giant plug hole for CFCs, meaning that they do tend to accumulate there to an extent, and this means that it's easier for them to then end up in those clouds with the particles and get struck by UV and then start to degrade ozone. To an extent, but it's more the fact that, that the ozone depletion happens over the poles and then the depleted ozone stays over the poles, so if, if it was well mixed, then... It would get depleted, but it would mix in with the rest of the atmosphere. But but because it's not well mixed, it stays over the poles. So you see a really sort low. of you see the concentration of a lack of ozone there. Exactly that. Yes. Got one for you here, Helen. I hope you can do this as someone who's interested in flora and fauna and marine biology and stuff. This one's on insects. It's from Derek, and he says. Um, 
got two questions for you. First one, um, how is it that when an insect dies, such as a ladybird, it folds its six legs up under its abdomen as if to protect itself from something? Why does it do that? And what's the underlying mechanism? What do you think, Helen? I'm going to take a guess at that, since uh, entomology isn't actually my absolute strength. But um, I imagine it's something to do with partly the weight of the the the, uh, the elytra, the, the the wing cases of the the ladybird that sort of push it, that's weighing it down. Although they often end up on their backs as well. But I imagine it's something to do with the way the muscle is structured. And when the muscles are relaxed because they're dead and they're not actually contracting, that's the shape that they take naturally. And it, to let to extend their legs, that involves muscle contractions. And because the muscles aren't becoming contracted because it's dead, that's what happens. And it's almost that the I imagine there's tendons and things that kind of hold them in um, underneath the body. And that's why they do that. But that's a bit of a guess, I shall admit. I think Helen's right. It sounds very reasonable because if, if uh, you look at the muscle groups that are strongest, say, in the human body, they're the ones that hold you up against gravity. And so if you suddenly switch those off because there's no energy to keep them going, then the weaker, then, then under gravity the insect's going to collapse, isn't it? So its legs will fold up into the most compact shape. And so I think that's probably why they end up underneath. Also, when the insect dies, there's going to be a degree of drying. And when things dry out, of course, then there's going to be sort of shrinkage and contraction. And if the most favourable position for it to adopt is with its legs sort of drawn up underneath because things take up the least space and when everything tenses up and dries out like that, that could, could explain it. It could be something like that. Why not? Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Here's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen, and as I've mentioned, we're exploring the science of climate change this week, and from the British Antarctic Survey, joining us now is Eric Wolfe. Hi, Eric, thank you for coming in. It's great to have you with us. Hello. Now, a lot of people say, look at all this severe weather we're having this week. This must be evidence, given we've got the hottest average temperatures that we've ever had since records began. We've got countries in the world where their climates turned totally upside down, and we've got plants thinking it's the springtime already. I mean, there was a report in the newspapers this week, hay fever sufferers are in for a torrid time because plants are going to extend their pollen season because things are warming up. On the other hand, you've got people saying, well, over for years, the Earth has always had a number of natural cycles, and this is just one of them. So... As we're, you're working at the British Antarctic Survey, where's your foot? Which camp is your foot, foot firmly planted in, and and what's the evidence? Okay, well, firstly, I mean, clearly, an an individual bad day or good day doesn't tell you anything. You do get extremes, so you need to look at what happens over a long period. But I think that the the arguments about whether global warming is real hinge on maybe four four aspects. The first one is the physics, which tells us that we expect that when you get more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it should get warmer. The second one is whether carbon dioxide is actually increased in the atmosphere, and that's what I'm best at because that's what we can see from ice cores. The third one is whether in the past that's caused climate change, and at least every time carbon dioxide has changed in the past that we can see from the ice cores, then it has warmed, so there's, no, there's at least no counter-evidence. Then the fourth one is, it, is, is it warming today, which is actually the hardest one to do because we don't have much, rec- much uh, uh, evidence about what the climate was in detail, sort of on a day-to-day level, you know, what was the summer like as opposed to what was the annual average in the past. And in a way, it's the least relevant one, because if we think the physics tells us it's going to warm, and if we find out that in the past it's always warmed and we did what we're doing now, then uh, the fact that it hasn't yet, that we can't yet quite see it, doesn't, doesn't really matter either way. But nonetheless, people like to know, is it warmer now? And it looks as though it is, but it's, that's the hardest one to be sure about. How are you trying to work out what, what's been going on in the past? How are you using ice to do that? Well, it... The Antarctic ice sheet is uh, up to about three miles thick or four and a half kilometres thick at its thickest part. And if you drill into it, you're effectively drilling through snowfalls that go back over years, actually over hundreds of thousands of years. And the oldest core that we've worked on now is 800,000 years old. 
So we drill out this cylinder of ice, so 10 centimetre in diameter, but, but three, three kilometres long. Do you uh, do it in an environmentally friendly way? <laughs> uh, we do it in, a, in a, as environmentally friendly a way as possible, but I'm afraid there's no getting away from the fact that going to the Antarctic is not actually an environmentally friendly thing to do by itself, but hopefully you'll think the benefit was worth it. So, so we drill this cylinder of ice, and in the ice... There's lots of evidence about what the climate was like in the past, how much snowfall there was in the past, what the temperature was, and perhaps most crucially, we have these little bubbles in the ice because the snow compacts to form solid ice with, with air bubbles trapped in it. You can then crack open these bubbles again, put them into a chemical analyzer, and find out literally what the proportion of carbon dioxide to nitrogen and oxygen and all the other parts of the air. So it's like a time capsule going back over hundreds of thousands of years. How far back can you wind that clock? So, well, so far we, we've gone back 800,000 years. We think there is older ice around in the Antarctic, and we'd like to get to the older ice, but that's as far as we've got so far. And what do those 800,000 years tell you? Well, in that 800,000 years, we know that the Earth's gone through roughly eight ice ages, ice age cycles. So what I mean by an ice age is when there's ice covering northern Europe and North America. Um, in Britain, it's as far south as Norfolk at, at times, or even a little bit further. It also happens that it was colder over the whole of the globe, including the Antarctic. And what we've also found is that every time it was colder, there was less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere Every time it was a little bit warmer, like it, like it has been for the last 10,000 years, there's a bit more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but never anything like the amount that there has been in the last few decades. How much has it changed recently? Because there's a, a couple of emails we've had this week, and uh, as one person points out, you know, how, how does um, the burning of coal and that kind of thing actually contribute to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? How, mu how much does it add? Well, let, let me just give you some... I guess some numbers first. In the last 800,000 years, carbon dioxide has always ranged between 180 parts per million, so that means of every million molecules in the atmosphere, 180 are carbon dioxide. It's ranged between 180 in the cold periods up to 300 in the very warmest parts of, of the interglacials like we're in now. But at the moment, it's 380 parts per million, so that's already 30% higher than it's ever been. And there's only one possible explanation for that, that it's, that it's human activity. We do have other evidence for why it is. We can look at the isotopic composition of the carbon, and that looks like stuff that comes from fossil fuel rather than from natural systems. And we just know how much material we're putting into the atmosphere. You can calculate it, and it, and it works, that, that that's contributing to the increase. But uh, at the same time, whilst you can demonstrate there's lots of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it doesn't actually tell you that that's the thing that causes the warming, though, does it? Because there are other things that can be more of a greenhouse-provoking agent than carbon dioxide. Take water. Water's much more uh, of, a, of, a, of a heat reflectant than carbon dioxide, isn't it? It keeps us warmer than, than carbon dioxide does. Methane, too. Absolutely. The biggest greenhouse gas is water vapour. But, of course, we don't have any control over water vapour, so the water vapour just acts as a feedback in this system. It's the carbon dioxide that, that we can actually do something about methane as well. But methane, although it's more effective, is, is at lower concentration. But that's also double now the concentration that it was any time in the last 650,000 years. So, so there's, no, there's no comfort to be had from talking about other gases like that. So the carbon dioxide is, is increasing very fast, actually about 50 times faster than any time we can see in the historical record. But you're right to ask, how do we know that that's causing the change? We can see that every time in the past when we came out of an ice age, the CO2 increased. If it didn't do that, uh, if, the CO2, or if the CO2 increased in the past and the climate didn't change, then we would really have a cause for concern and could question, do we know what we're talking about? But the fact that it did in a scientific way, it's, it's not proof for, but it's not negative proof, and that's what we want. Actually, what people have done, though, with the climate of the last 100 years is they've run these climate models that, 
that understand the physics of the system. And if they put in things like volcanic eruptions, which cause a cooling, uh, changes in solar activity, of course, when the sun's a little bit stronger, it gets a bit warmer, they can reproduce more or less what happened in the first half of the 20th century, but only by adding in carbon dioxide can they reproduce what's happened in the second half of the 20th century. So that seems to be the nail in the coffin for, for carbon dioxide, because we, we've got a couple of emails here from people who are mentioning the, the volcanic eruptions. Simon Jennings says, I've heard it suggested the eruption of Krakatoa causes massive cooling of the Earth's atmosphere, uh, and these effects are now diminishing. Could this be a contributory factor to global warming? And Brian, who's a Brian Loveday in Cambridge, wrote to us and said, with so many active volcanoes around the world, how does the pollution from industry over the last 150 years compare with the number of things that have gone in the atmosphere because of volcanoes? Right, well, the, the first question's easy. The, the aerosol that, or the particles that go into the atmosphere from volcanoes do cause a cooling, but it only tends to last for a couple of years before the particles all drop out again back to the background level. So you'd have to have volcanoes going off all the time, to really big volcanoes going off all the time into the upper atmosphere to, to have an effect um, like that. In fact, we do have our, our own kind of volcanic effect because industry also puts sulphate aerosol a little bit like the volcanic particles into the atmosphere and that is actually helping to keep us a little bit cooler than we would be otherwise and so that's actually a concern when we stop burning coal uh, if we stop burning dirty coal which produces sulphur dioxide we'll actually make things a little bit worse for a while before they get better Jeff Kish says uh, and he writes to us um, you folks are wonderful to listen to quick question on global warming um, I know a lot of pretty smart people that think global warming is just part of a natural trend that humans have very little influence on. Uh, one person I know points to the fact that it's actually getting colder in the southern hemisphere, the Antarctic ice sheets thickening in places. Um, how do you account for that? Uh, well, I'm, af I'm afraid I can't even give you comfort there. Although parts of the Antarctic haven't showed a very strong warming yet, mainly because they're so isolated from the, re from the rest of the atmosphere, the Antarctic Peninsula, for example, uh, which, which people have seen on their news screens in the last week because Princess Anne was there, has been warming very fast. It's one of the places that's warming the most rapidly, and we think that we now think that probably is related to global warming. We weren't really sure before because we're we're cautious people, scientists, whatever people may think. Uh, so the rest of the Antarctic hasn't yet shown a very strong cooling, uh, but the models suggest that it will. And it is actually true that the ice sheet under warming probably will get thicker at first because what happens is around the edges where it's warmest, it will start to melt. But in the centre, it's, it's nowhere near the temperature where it will melt, so it won't start to melt in the centre. And you get a little bit more snowfall when it's warmer because you get more water vapour into the atmosphere, precisely what you were talking about. So that does make it a little thicker in the centre, a little thinner at the edges. But unfortunately, all the predictions are that what happens at the edges wins. And my last question for now, Eric, is... You mentioned earlier that uh, you've detected some number of, of these cycles in your 800,000-year ice core, showing there have been uh, the Earth plunged into the deep freeze for a period of time, ice ages, and then things have warmed up considerably. So given that there have only been humans knocking around for, I don't know, six million years since we first climbed out of trees and became humanoid, uh, six million years, uh, the Earth's been through many of these convulsions. How do you account for the fact that we've only had cars, industrial revolution, lots of CO2 for a, for a few hundred years, yet we've seen the Earth inexorably doing these cycles? If we'd been doing this radio programme here in Cambridge 10,000 years ago, we'd have been under an ice sheet, wouldn't we? Uh, 10,000 years ago, you probably wouldn't quite have been, but 20,000 you would have been for sure. Uh, there are certainly natural cycles in climate, and nobody's claiming that all climate change is, is man-made. 
and the natural changes actually, actually in a certain way it almost doesn't matter whether the change is man-made or natural if you're quite right if we were coming out of the ice age now I, I sometimes use this analogy if you were if you were coming out of the ice age you might be living in a village in what's now the English Channel and you'd be pretty worried about coming out of the ice age the fact is that all climate change is pretty bad for people and what they tend to what they've done in the past is to move to places that suit the way suit their lifestyle better unfortunately now we have a very crowded planet and there's really nowhere for people to move to so we're going to have to deal with this in a different way. But we still don't know why those things happened. Uh, We don't know entirely why those things happened. We've got ideas about why they happened and why they happened when they happened but it's still a little bit hard to understand why such small changes in external factors cause such big climate changes which actually worries us a little because it means there are these big non-linearities in the system. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks Eric. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed (laughs) on your way to work or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now, we've heard what the problem is, but now it's time to discuss how things uh, could change and how we could actually do something to try to offset the effects of climate change. Our naked scientist, Alicia Webb, uh, asked Alison Hill from the British Wind Energy Association and Mark, uh, uh, Max Carcass from the Ocean Power Delivery all about how we can go about trying to save the planet. Wind energy was in the news late last year when the government approved a massive new offshore wind farm to be built just where the Thames empties into the sea. It's called the London Array and it's going to have about 300 turbines generating 1,000 megawatts of clean electricity. That one wind farm will provide half as much energy as is currently operational in the whole of the UK and enough to power about a quarter of the homes in Greater London. I asked the British Wind Energy Association's Alison Hill all about it. The London Array offshore wind farm has certainly attracted a lot of attention. This is going to be the biggest offshore wind farm in the world by about a factor of five. The UK is very firmly at the forefront of adopting the whole climate change issue and taking measures to secure future energy supplies. And wind farms are a good way of doing this. Okay, so are there any environmental costs to putting a huge wind farm offshore in the Thames estuary? No technology comes without impacts. Um, The London Array obviously has had several years' worth of very detailed environmental assessment carried out And there will be consequences, it is inevitable, but this project has been designed as closely as possible to minimise those impacts. And we've just had um, reports published from the Danish offshore experience, which looks at eight years' worth of environmental impacts from two of their offshore wind farms, which are currently the biggest in the world. And these demonstrate very clearly that wind farms do operate in harmony with the local environment. Small wind turbines on people's roofs are a bit less visually impacting. I mean, do they work the same way as the large wind farms and do you think they're feasible? The principle of generating electricity from the wind is the same, whether you're doing it onshore, offshore, on a roof or on a pole down the back of the garden. What you will find with these smaller domestic scale turbines is that they're not necessarily as efficient as their commercial colleagues, you know, the wind farm turbines. But studies have shown that you can see a reduction in your energy bills of up to a quarter in some cases. And possibly even more importantly, we found that where people have small wind turbines installed, they actually become more energy aware by seeing their meter ticking over when they generate electricity, but also ticking back when they use electricity. They become more conscious um, of how much they use. So they will switch lights off when they leave the room. They won't leave the TV on standby. And that actually is going to make a huge difference to reducing carbon dioxide emissions. 
So putting small wind turbines up doesn't just contribute to your household electricity but also changes your attitude. That's a, possibly one of the most important points to consider about domestic or micro-generation technologies. There's something that we come into contact with in our daily lives and do actually change our daily routines for the better. Brilliant. And my last question for you today is, would you, Alison Hill, live next to a wind farm? I would love to live next to a wind farm. I really would. <clears throat> my parents in Scotland, actually, are in the process of buying a new house. And my mother was quite upset when they'd sell the old one because she had a beautiful view of a wind farm from her kitchen window. And she said she found it most soothing when she was doing the dishes. We actually have lots of people in the UK who deliberately buy houses that look out over wind farms. We've got farmers who use the wind turbines as weather markers for their projects. So, yes, wind energy, I think, is a beautiful thing. And I would be delighted to live next to a wind farm. And there are many thousands, if not millions, of people out there in the UK who agree with me. OK, so we've heard briefly about wind power, which is a pretty established technology these days that we're all pretty familiar with. But what's next in renewable technology? A company in Scotland called Ocean Power Delivery have come up with a very cool new machine which generates electricity by floating on top of the waves and which looks just like an enormous red worm. They built the world's first commercial wave farm which was opened at the end of October just last year. It's off the coast of Portugal and it consists of three of these machines with the capacity to power a couple of thousand homes. I asked Ocean Power Delivery's Max Carcass how they work. First of all, to describe what it looks like, if you imagine four train carriages out at sea, um, that's a bit what the machine looks like in terms of its shape and size. Now, the machine is, is moored at its nose, and what happens is that uh, it points into the direction of the oncoming waves. It's free to swing and point into those waves, and waves travel down the length of the machine. And in doing so, each of these, uh, if you imagine them as train carriages, articulates both up and down and side to side. And that movement's uh, resisted by uh, hydraulic rams, which are a bit like big bicycle pumps, which pump high-pressure hydraulic fluid through hydraulic motors, which turn generators. What environmental impacts could the machines have? We certainly think that our, our footprint is very small. We have no fluids or greases in direct contact with seawater. We've got no rapidly moving uh, pieces of, of, of equipment in the water. I mean, it's, it's fair to say we're biased, of course, but we think our our environmental impact um, is, is actually one of the least of any of the main power-generating technologies. What about the comparative costs? Um, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. The, the costs uh, at this stage are higher, um, but that's because the technology is, is relatively immature. Um, like with all these technologies, you've got to produce something and, and get it out there in volume in order to drive the cost down. And what gives us tremendous uh, hope is that our opening costs are substantially below uh, where wind started 20, 25 years ago and substantially below the current costs of solar photovoltaics. So all the projections are is that uh, if, we can, if we can really uh, deliver into this market, then wave energy has the potential to become one of the, the cheapest costs of, uh, of generation. So why is it, do you think, that development of wave power is lagging so far behind the development of wind power? Well, I think it's a mix of things. Um, the, the challenges are threefold. They're technical to make something that works, works reliably and can cope with the conditions. They're commercial, which is to find the right partners to work with. But also importantly, they're political because, you know, what we're trying to do here is what any business school would tell you uh, not to do, which is come up with a new product in what is, after all, a commodity market. Electricity is just a commodity and what comes out of the socket, you know, you can't really differentiate a bit between people don't kind of brag about wave power electricity to their friends and uh, uh, enthuse about the uh, electrons being made uh, by artisan wave power uh, engineers off the coast of Orkney. But 
So what's really required, and has always been the case in energy technologies, is a feeder market that, uh, that can allow these things to go forward. And if we can do that, we can also build a major industry. If you look at wind turbines, it employs many tens of thousands of people worldwide, but sadly not so many in the UK because we really missed the boat on that. So let's not miss it in, in wave energy. That was our own naked scientist, Ali Webb, exploring some alternative ways to generate electricity, including wave power. And before that, the Thames Gateway Project, one of the, what's going to become the world's biggest wind energy generating project when it uh, kicks off. You'll be hearing more from Ali later in the programme when we put her through her paces in a gym in Cambridge to find out how much energy those people sweating away in gyms right around the country could put into the national grid. Could you power a television? Well, we'll be finding out. Uh, Peter, who's in uh, Norfolk listening to us, says, Hi, Dr Chris. What's the effect on the environment of all the stores that have hot air blowers uh, heating the outside in their doorways? Well, good point, Peter. It's a tremendous waste of energy. Each of those fan heaters is probably burning off four kilowatts, which is a massive amount of energy, and they're running 24-7. Also, think about the supermarkets that don't bother to put doors on their freezers and fridges because it makes the produce more inviting and there are fewer barriers between the consumer and purchaser, i.e. you, and the goods. That's a huge amount of energy that's spilling out into the room. They try and recycle some of it, but it's a huge amount of energy that just means that you're having to heat the room and at the same time cool the room and it burns off a massive amount of electricity. And all those bright lights they keep on all night as well are no good either, (laughs) really. Supermarkets, dreadful places. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. We've heard from Eric Wolfe from the British Antarctic Survey that carbon dioxide is the culprit. What are we going to do with it? Well, Ian Gibbons is here from us, with us from Imperial College in London. Hi, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, hi. Uh, so you reckon that the answer is that we don't dump the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the first place. We've got to put it somewhere. Well, carbon dioxide from fossil fuels, yes. I mean, there's carbon dioxide coming from other sources, land use. But the big problem is the fossil carbon that was locked up hundreds of millions of years ago that's getting into the atmosphere at a much higher rate than we can take. Now, it is quite interesting what we're trying to achieve to mitigate the risk of climate change. And there's a lot talked about the rate of emissions, but not so much talked about cumulative emissions. We're looking probably at being able to put about 500 billion tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere and still have a reasonable risk of avoiding dangerous climate change, and there's probably 10 times as much carbon as that in fossil fuels. So in other words, there's a, there's a time bomb sitting beneath the surface of the Earth just waiting to go off if we unleash it. Absolutely. So what are you saying we should do about it? How do we get around the problem? Because well, we, we need energy, don't we? We do, but the amount of energy we need is fairly variable, and I, I think you can get quite fixated on saying, well, we'll give people as much energy as they want. If you're thinking about climate change, just think about CO2. And we could say... If we didn't have the fossil fuels there, we wouldn't have the problem. We might not have as much energy, but we'd adjust. But the big thing to say is, look, if you're going to use fossil fuels, you have to use them in an environmentally responsible way. And ultimately, that means capturing the CO2. And one of the things that we do worry about, or I worry about quite a lot, is that if you leave them there and don't use them, you you have wind power, as we're hearing about, effectively you're saying, oh, I've left some fossil fuel in the ground by using that wind power. Uh, But for that to do any good, essentially people have to not use it for the next 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years. And some and of, it, some of it's going to get burned off anyway naturally, isn't it? Some of it's going to, to seep out and oh, escape. No, that's pretty low. I wouldn't, wouldn't worry about that. OK, so what you're advocating is that we, we've got a power station opening that burns coal in China every single week, a new one. Um, what you're saying is that what we need to be doing, not just in China but everywhere, is have some way of making sure the CO2 that's coming from the coal it's burning is not going into the atmosphere. So how do we do that? Right, there's essentially three ways. 
you, one way is to capture the CO2 that's coming out of the chimney, to scrub it out in a, a solvent that absorbs it, then you release it as a concentrated gas, compress it till it's liquid and then put it underground. Another way is to burn the coal with oxygen, so you just get a reaction that makes carbon dioxide directly and you clean it up a bit and then put that underground. And then a third way is to gasify the coal, turn it into a fuel gas, which turns... Syngas, for example. Uh, yeah, that sounds a bit bad, doesn't it, really? Syngas. Well, I guess it is <laughs> no, this sin, is good stuff. It? No, this, is, this isn't sinful. Um, turn, it, turn it into a, a gas which consists... which The carbon is there as carbon monoxide... And then instead of burning the carbon monoxide and reacting it with oxygen to make CO2, react it with water vapour yep. uh, to make hydrogen and then separate out the carbon dioxide and put that underground. Okay, but how much energy does it take to clean up the CO2 coming off of a coal-fired power station? And, and therefore, you know, how much more coal are you going to have to burn to make up for the amount of energy you're sinking into these clean-up mechanisms? Yeah, you, you got the wrong idea there. Why are you worried about how much coal we burn? I told you we've got probably ten times as much as we can safely put in the atmosphere. You've got to recalibrate your thinking But I'm thinking, you know, are we, are we flogging a dead or Should we just say don't burn these fuels and we'll go and we should sink the money and the energy and the effort not into putting the carbon dioxide away but not producing it in the first place? Okay, well, I mean, if you, if you think you can get the Chinese to follow along with that, go and tell them. But do you think you can get the Chinese to follow along with your strategy of, of scrubbing the emissions from their power stations? I think you've got a lot more chance of asking people to modify the way they're operating by a relatively small amount, burning perhaps 20% more of the coal. Um, depends whether you, whether you put it against technology that they had 10 years ago, in which case you're burning the same amount. So you've basically got life as usual. You carry on and you don't put CO2 in the atmosphere. Just as, just as an example, if we were talking about dealing with the carbon dioxide from oil, costing, say, $50 a tonne to deal with it, that would add the equivalent of $20 to a barrel of oil. You wouldn't notice it. Well, not in Gordon Brown's Britain anyway, but in America they might. But what, what's the state of technology in achieving this? It's, it's all very well us saying, oh, this is what we need to do, but are we in a position, technologically speaking, to make this a reality? We certainly are in a position to make it a reality. We're not in a position to roll it out on all new power plants overnight. Um, we're talking about developing some big technology. Power plants have to be reliable. They have to run for a long time. We need to learn how to do it. And actually what's very important, and we're discussing this a lot in the business at the moment, is how to get the first plants built. The EU just announced it wants to have up to 12 plants with carbon capture and storage running in Europe by 2015. But what they don't say is when the first one of those is going to be built. Uh, we're just debating in the UK at the moment how to fund one or two new power plants with carbon capture and storage that will be flagship projects for the world. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Dr Chris and Dr Helen and we're exploring the science of climate change. Now over the last few months we've had a couple of emails asking the same energy related question which is would it be possible to hook up all of the exercise bikes around the country to the national grid so that all those people sweating away in the gym can actually help to do something useful with their energy they're wasting. Well never to turn down a challenge our naked scientist team including Dave Ansell, Derek Thorne and our resident Australian Alicia Webb went to a gym in Cambridgeshire to find out and here's how they got on. So we are in a gym in Cambridge and we're going to be finding out whether it is possible to hook up all of the exercise bikes in the country to the national grid and, you know, make it much easier for us to power this, this country that we live in. So here we go. We're with Ali and Dave, basically. So, um, Ali, firstly, we're going to be getting you to cycle on an exercise bike to actually see whether you can, you know, help power the grid. What, what do you think, though? Do you reckon you'll be able to kind of contribute to the national grid? Oh, I've got very strong legs. I should be able to drive a few houses. 
All right, OK. And, and with us also is Dave, who's going to be explaining how all of this actually works and how the power grid works. So what have you got with you, Dave? Well, to start off with, we're going to be looking at how all the power in the country is generated, pretty much, apart from maybe solar cells, so 99.99% of the power. So first of all, I've got a magnet, which is a sort of tubular rod thing, and a coil of wire attached to a meter, which measures how much electricity it's producing. So, Ali, would you like to take the magnet and put it in the middle of the coil and watch the meter? Well, I seem to be making a current just by moving the magnet in and out. Yeah, so what we're seeing is we're actually seeing the needle on the... On the what, what, what's the, it actually measuring? Is it amps or something? Yeah, it's measuring the amount of current, the amp, number of amps. OK, so we are getting a bit of current there because the needle on this, this current meter is kind of going over to the, to the right, basically, when Ali actually moves that magnet inside, uh, kind of in the middle of that circular coil of wire. So what's going on there? Uh, well, basically, the fast, if you move a magnet near a coil of wire, you produce a voltage, and that voltage produces a current if there's somewhere for the current to go. OK, so that sounds like something very handy, which we could use to good effect. In fact, we do all the time. Down here, I've got a slightly more complicated version of this. Basically, it's a hand-crank generator, which the army uses to power their radios. Um, well, even now? Even now, because if you're in the middle of nowhere and your battery's flat and you can't call for an airstrike, you're kind of in trouble. So, and I've wired that up to a couple of lights, and we can see how, what happens when you turn the lights on to how difficult it is to turn. OK, well, let me just quickly describe what this is before we start turning. It's basically a wooden box. It's about the size of, I don't know, quite a large radio, I suppose. And uh, it's got a kind of a perspex front, so you can see part of the insides. And there's a big metal handle which goes around in a circle, and there's two light bulbs in there as well. So, Dave, what would you like Ali to do? Well, if she wants to turn the handle, that will spin the magnets and the coils around inside and hopefully generate some electricity. And OK, I'm... so we're doing the same sort of thing with the magnet in the core. We're generating a current. OK, so off, off we go then. So to start off with, I haven't got any lights turned on. I'm going to turn on a small 5-watt light bulb. Feel any difference there, Ali? Yeah, it got a little bit more difficult. I'm going to turn that one off and turn on a 10-watt light bulb. It's uh, very difficult to turn now. Come on, I thought you could power a couple of houses. What's going on here? A couple of houses, surely that's the same as a 10-watt bulb. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, OK. Um, and now so, I'm just going to turn on both of them. And now, now it's hard, basically. <laughs> Ali's really... Well, she, you're doing well, though. You are getting that thing round, so that's brilliant. OK, so there we go. So that, well, I mean, that's what the soldiers have to do in the field then, to power their radios. And, of course, if people have wind-up radios, is this the same sort of thing as well? Yeah, it's basically the same sort of thing. The energy that we're producing, that we need to turn on the light bulbs, is all coming from Ali's arms. So the more energy we use in light bulbs, the harder Ali's got to work. The, the thing is, it did get much harder when you... Uh, you only switched on a bulb, didn't you, and it actually got much harder, which seems kind of odd. So what's going on there? Well, actually, what's happening inside the generator is when a current flows through those coils, they turn into electromagnets, which fight your you moving the magnets around, which make it harder to turn. The thing is, though, I mean, is this actually so different from what happens in power stations? That's ex I mean, that is exactly what happens in a power station. You burn coal, oil or uranium, pretty much, in order to power an engine which turns the generator, which makes your power. So there we are, then. We've now actually got this exercise bike, which we want to see how much we can power. So Ali's going to get on there. What would you like, what would you like now, Dave? Well, basically, your arms aren't very strong, and that generator isn't the most efficient. So what we've got here is an exercise bike here in the gym, and we're going to get Ali to pedal as hard as she can, use the most biggest muscles in her body, her legs, and see how much power she can produce. All right, OK, so the legs, the, the Ali legs are ready to go. OK, so off you go, then. And uh, we've actually got quite a newfangled exercise bike, which tells us stuff, doesn't it? So what does it actually tell us? Well, at the moment, Ali, how hard are you working, Ali? Um, medium hard. Apparently she's producing about 150, 160 watts, so maybe enough to power a decent-sized TV at the moment. All right, then, can you accelerate any more? Yes, here we go. 
Okay, so now Ali's working as hard as she can. Her head's, head's flying all over the place, and she's maybe producing 280 watts, which is about the same as a computer without the monitor running. The thing is, could you have kept that going long enough to do anything useful on a computer? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So there we go. We could have, like, had a computer on for about 10 seconds there. Um, so, well, I mean, th- th- let's say, though, that we had, you know, the whole nation of, of uh, people working on exercise bikes. Surely that could be a bit more significant and help us power the grid. Well, there's 50 million people in the country all pedalling, maybe on average, because some of them are kids and some of them are old, maybe on average producing about 100 watts each. That is going to be about 5 gigawatts with everyone pedalling all at once. Now, that sounds quite good. That's about a big coal power station, which is pretty good going. Um, But that's the whole nation. That would be the whole nation sprinting on an exercise bike. Probably, maybe, at the most, one in a thousand people at any one time of pedalling. So, actually, it would probably be nearer five megawatts, which is about the same as one um, large windmill. Okay, so one wind turbine, great. Okay, and and even then, though, if we did want to use that, if we say, well, every little helps, I mean, is, is that even feasible? Well, you probably find there's losses from actually generating the power and putting it back into the grid, so you're probably only making about four megawatts. You'd have to spend billions on little copper generators everywhere. To be honest, it's not really worth it. All right, so there you go. So, Ali, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to pipe you into the grid today or any time soon, so sorry about that. But anyway, how are you feeling? Have we exhausted you? Yes, it is quite exhausting to try and power a computer with no monitor. Ah, but all in the name of science, so there you go. All right, well, thanks very much to Ali, who's been pedalling hard, and Dave, who's been explaining hard, and uh, that's all from us in a gym in Cambridge. Thank you very much, Derek and Dave and Ali, for that kitchen science. Next week, the team are going to be in Hugh Hunt's kitchen to find out the science behind how your dishwasher works. And now, the answer you've all been waiting for. How old is the Earth? Our teaser question this week. And we've had lots of really uh, close um, answers, and lots of you are actually bang on. So we've had to pull a name out of the hat. The answer actually is around about 4.55 billion years old. Now, that's not because the rocks that we found on the Earth are that old. We're actually only about 3.5, 3.8 million years old that we found um, that make up the Earth. But from meteorites, um, we th- which we think were sort of part of the original um, creation of our solar system, are are in fact that old, 4.55 billion years old. And w- the name out of the hat was Negan from London. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody else who called in, texted and so on. Um, we had some, uh, some people way over, a few people way under, but you're all pretty much there. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks, Helen. Well, that's it for this week. Next time, we'll be diving down to the bottom of the sea to the world of the extremophile. In other words, organisms that survive in extreme conditions like the boiling water that's issuing from hydrothermal vents. We'll also be hearing how researchers have found bacteria three kilometres underground that have been living there for millions of years on little more than radioactivity. So if you've got any questions on any of those things, or just any general questions or feedback, we love hearing from you. Drop us a line, chris at nakedscientists.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Nature podcast, which we also make for more top science stories. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And if you fancy talking science with some other naked scientists, then do drop by our forum at nakedscientists.com forward slash forum. There's a thriving hubbub of activity all about science, just waiting for you to come and experience it. Until next time, from Helen and from me, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.